What's good, jazz fans? Welcome to Jabber Jazz, your home for Utah jazz basketball content, always from a fan's perspective with an analytical emphasis, and we always keep it ad-free as well. And I'm Adam Bushman, your host, and I'm dropping in for a mini podcast to talk about the big news that went down yesterday about John Collins to the Jazz. I'm going to discuss what it means for John himself, what it means for Utah, and the future. If you like what we're doing, please consider subscribing, following our channel and our podcast, leaving a review or comment. All those things help get this content out to as many Jazz fans as possible. Well, without further ado... Let's jabber jazz. Okay, so the Sega is over. John Collins is finally traded. It has been years and years that John Collins has been rumored as a trade candidate for the Atlanta Hawks. In fact, the Jazz numerous times towards the end of the Quinn Snyder era and then at last year's trade deadline were rumored to have interest in John Collins. Kind of early in the process, it was quite rumored that John Collins was a very valued piece and that the Atlanta Hawks were interested in a big package featuring young players and picks. And even up to last deadline, it seemed like the packages... It seemed like the packages that were being offered for John Collins still had some pretty decent value for Atlanta. But ultimately, John Collins is dealt here in the offseason before the technical start of the 2023-24 season. So let's break down the deal. The Jazz received John Collins. In exchange, the Atlanta Hawks received Rudy Gay and a protected future second-round pick. And when I say protected, this is an interesting one. This is Memphis's pick, which... Uh, the way the protections work on it, it will convey to another team if it's between 31 and 45. So Memphis gets it if it's a bad pick, and now Atlanta via Utah will get the pick if it's a good second-round pick. So kind of an interesting uh, scenario with how the protections work on that one. Let's dive into the why of this deal for a little bit. Okay, so why would Atlanta do this? Why would they give up... uh, at least perceived by them as a really good young player for basically nothing, a old veteran who's on expiring contract and a protected pick in the second round. So ultimately, Atlanta's doing this because they are in real trouble with their cap. They need to shed money to do a couple things. They need to shed money to give extensions, contract extensions for some of their young guys, like Onyeka Kongwu, uh, amongst others. They also, oh, and um, DeJounte Murray, who they acquired from the San Antonio Spurs last offseason. They also need to be in better compliance with the future CBA. The way that the collective bargaining agreement works for the future is that Uh, teams, if they um, get to a certain level above the luxury tax, if they get to a certain level above the luxury tax, they enter what is being called the second apron. And the second apron uh, basically brings a lot of added penalties to teams who are in that range. And one of those penalties is that uh, you can not make trades unless the matching salary is within a 10% difference, as opposed to normal teams can operate within a 25% difference. So it just gets, that's just one of the downsides. Um, There are also penalties that result in picks 
and you know loss of uh, specific contracts that you can use. So it was really, really, really important that Atlanta and some other teams who are going to be in this similar situation can shed some salary and, and be better suited for the future NBA that's coming. Why would the Utah Jazz do this deal? It's interesting. Uh, the Jazz, for the new collective bargaining agreement, you now need to have 90% of the salary cap in rostered salaries by the start of the season. So say the um, so say the salary cap is a hundred thousand a hundred million dollars. Well, the Jazz need ninety million dollars in rostered salaries by the start of the season. Gone are the days when a team can start the year with uh, you know forty percent of the cap open for them to absorb salaries throughout the year. Uh, that's that's gone, and so this is a this is a mandate the Jazz need to uh, need to comply with. They also get off Rudy Gay. And they get to bet on a younger talent, which is which is exciting. This trade was announced yesterday, just before the press conference. Um, and when I say it was announced, it was uh, announced by the reporters um, and uh, those insiders with the league. This technically isn't a valid, completed trade until after next season begins, and that next season begins uh, right at the start of uh, July. I think it's July 6th or something after what's called the moratorium, which is kind of like a timeout for the league uh, happens. And they can't be completed until then because technically the Jazz don't have cap space yet. Currently, Russell Westbrook and his large contract, among other players, are still on our books. And so until those come off the books for the next season, the Jazz can finish executing this deal. The good news is that it's a really small, not complicated deal. So uh, it's very, very, very unlikely that uh, that not completing it now and saving it for later won't be an issue at all. So let's talk John Collins really quick. Six uh, nine forward, two hundred twenty six pounds. He's been in the league for six years. He turns twenty six right before the season starts. He's under contract for three more years. He's one of the more athletic, physically impressive players in the league. His career has been a real big seesaw, and you've kind of seen that being reflected in the, yes, we're open to trade him. No, we're actually going to keep him. Yes, we're going to trade him. No, no, we're going to keep him again. And really, I think that the inflection point, which was um, kind of mentioned mostly by a Twitter follower of mine, Ken Clayton, who's been on the podcast. He kind of identified the inflection point being most drastically when they hired coach Nate McMillan, the Atlanta Hawks. So let's take a look at that. So if you look at pre-Nate McMillan, okay, and uh, Nate McMillan was hired uh, mid-2020-21 season. So we'll just look at the years before uh, 2021. Um, the, or that 2020-21 season. So if we look at that before, John Collins was looking like a rising star. You know, 20 points uh, per 75-minute uh, possessions. I'll use per 75 possessions because that will balance pace of play, amount of time played, all that kind of stuff. We keep it nicely balanced um, despite, you know, different roles and despite different coaches and and uh, approaches to the game and stuff like that. So 20 points, 11 rebounds, two assists, shooting 63% um, true shooting. 
That's some pretty impressive stuff. Then when Nate McMillan comes, his points dip by 7%. His rebounds dip by 21%. Assists dip by 15%. Turnovers went down by 33%, so that's good. But blocks went down. Steals stayed the same. Personal fouls went down, which is good. And his true shooting percentage dipped by um, 2.5 percentage points. That's really interesting. So why why Nate McMillan? I think it's best illustrated in the time and number of touches John Collins got in certain situations. Okay, Nate McMillan was a was a style who wanted uh, Trey Collin, uh, Trey Young to have the ball, wanted a space floor kind of pick and roll type stuff, and John Collins went from as a rookie second, third-year player who had the ball a lot, he was put in positions around the rim to score, use his athleticism, use his strength. And then with Nate McMillan started transitioning to, oh, we're going to put you in the corner, John Collins. And, hey, we're going to use you most on the defensive end, John Collins. And, hey, we want you to crash the offensive boards, but you need to crash them from the three-point line. And I think that's really, really well intri- uh, illustrated when we look at the um, the touches that each player had in what we call the the paint area. Okay, so if we look before Nate McMillan was was around the team, okay, and then after when uh, when Nate McMillan was kind of running everything, it's some real stark differences. On, on what kind of happened. If you look at overall touches, before Nate McMillan, John Collins was getting nearly 60 touches a game. That fell to 49 when Nate McMillan arrived. So that's down nearly 20%. And then if you look at paint touches, he was averaging 8.8 paint touches a game. Okay, so nearly nine times he's getting this 6'9", big, strong, athletic forward is getting nine touches right in the paint where he's super efficient, long, athletic, physically imposing. Nate McMillan arrives. That goes down to 4.9, nearly cut in half. And the time of possession, the amount of time he's able to have the ball himself, went down from 1.5 seconds on average to 1.3. A modest but... Significant when you also factor in that the volume of touches. So now, not only is he holding the ball less per touch, he's getting the ball less, um, 20% less of the time. And then in the paint, he's getting it nearly cut in half. That is really, really incredible. Okay, And then it kind of, uh, kind of explains a little bit why his true shooting percentage went down. Yeah, he is taking more threes. His three-point attempt rate was up 65%. But his free throw rate, partly in large part because he's no longer at the rim, is down 14%. And then if you look at his rim rate, again, very similar to the paint touches. So now he went from pre-Nate McMillan, 53% of his field goal attempts were at the rim, went down to 33%. Holy cow! So this guy is is this guy is just an absolute force at the rim and he has the body and the athleticism and the length for it and Nate McMillan and the Atlanta Hawks their style was to kind of put him in the corner on offense 
didn't touch the ball, rarely got into the paint, and we wonder kind of why his his stats suffered for it and why he was disengaged. Everything he's good at, they said don't do. Now it's not an, an entire loss because you know he did start taking more threes. He did improve on the defensive end. He started uh, creating a style of play that wasn't reliant on himself scoring because he virtually never got the ball. And when he did, they were an opportunity to score that aren't don't come as natural to him. So I really think that John Collins is an amazing transition player. He's great on cuts. He's a good pick and roll uh, lob threat as well. He can shoot the three, but that that is a complimentary thing. That shouldn't be his highlight. Uh, he improved it as a defender, a passer, non-scoring contributor. John Collins, I think, is a great, great bet to rehab some value. I think he totally fits what the Jazz want to do. Let's talk about that fit, actually. So, like I said, the Jazz had to use their cap space, and they used it on someone with this kind of value rebuild potential. So he fits what the Jazz want to do because he's athletic, big, long, strong. He plays with and without the ball. He can work inside out, contributes on both ends. And immediately, I think you see a a starting lineup of Larry Markkinen, or I shouldn't say starting lineup, starting front court of Larry Markkinen, John Collins, and Walker Kessler. Then I think you get Taylor Hendricks and Kelly Olenek coming off the bench with Luka Samanich and Damian Jones there as uh, your third string bigs. So what's kind of the impact here? Well, I think Collins now is with a team who's uh, far less um, far less strict about, okay, we have the pick and roll, ball handler and we have the roller and those two are all of the time in the action and then sometimes depending on how the defense reads we could get John and others involved that's not how the Jazz run things the Jazz are going to run things like uh, they have with uh, Kessler and with Markinen and with Clarkson specifically to get them to the ball in high, le- high leverage situations. I think that's going to be what uh, what John Collins is going to be able to really feed off of. Will Hardy prides himself on effort and sharing the ball and you know working as a team, and I think John Collins will really appreciate that. Some of the other impact is going to be Taylor Hendricks. Um, I was always kind of skeptical that he would start, but I thought, hey, if Kelly Olynyk is traded throughout the year, then Hendricks might start towards the end, kind of an Oshai type um, ascension. But now I'm thinking Hendricks doesn't start at all this year, which I'm starting to now think that it won't impact his minutes. And I'll tell you why. I'm thinking that Taylor Hendricks is seen by the Utah Jazz as a 3-4. I'd always kind of thought of him as a 4-5, but perhaps the Jazz want to see him back up Larry Markkinen and really force him to develop those on-ball skills, which would be really nice. So if he really was kind of a 3-4, well, then you can get him 20 to 24 minutes in potentially three positions, and uh, and I think that's that's more than doable. Olenek is also probably not with the Jazz long-term. But just because of how Olenek plays and the complementary styles of all these guys, I think you can slow play it and experiment with him most of the year, trade him at the deadline, or just let his contract expire at the end of the next year. So let's talk future really, really quick. The 
John, John Collins is owed $75 million over the coming three years. If you That sounds like a lot. And it frankly you know, is a lot if you just look at the raw figures. But if you compare it to what the cap is going to be, the salary cap, it works out to be 19, 18, and 17% of the cap. Okay, so that's less than if you distributed starter-level money equally among the five starters. So that actually works out to be quite nice. Also, the timing of when that uh, that money comes off your books works out pretty nicely. It lines in the year that uh, Walker Kessler and Oshai Abaji's extensions would begin. It's also really great salary matching. I don't know that John Collins is going to be with the Jazz for forever and that we resign him and all that. In fact, it's probably it's probably a good bet that the Jazz don't. But in the meantime, it's really good for salary matching. If the Jazz want to go after a big star who makes a lot of money, is on like a Supermax or a Max contract, well, the Jazz have this salary now, which is perfect for salary matching. You can now put John Collins in as a 20 freaking six year old <laughs> who's like the core salary piece of the deal surround with other young pieces and a boatload of picks. And now you have a very, very attractive offer for some of these stars if you want to. Well, that's our little breakdown of the John Collins trade. Hopefully, you're excited about it as I am. I've been on the John Collins redemption train here for quite a while. If you like what we're doing, here's how you can support us. Subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. uh, Leave a review or a comment. And follow us on Twitter at Jabber underscore Jazz. Thanks so much. And as is customary, we'll leave you with some sounds of jazz.